This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 12, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. It's a wish list item for many in Congress taxing unrealized income. It was one provision signed into law by President Trump as part of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Now the Supreme Court may decide if taxing your gains before you sell your investments is once and for all a non-starter. Cato's Tommy Berry comments. Tommy, what is income? I realize that this seems like a very simple question, but when when we think about income for the purposes of taxation, what is it? Well, like most things, it's a simple question until you ask a lawyer and then it gets complicated. So it, income to a tax lawyer is essentially money that has been realized. And it's sort of hard to define that without looking at tons of case law, but in a nutshell, it's you've gotten a benefit. So the most obvious would be you got the money itself in your bank account, say you got a dividend from owning a stock, or you sold a stock and you got the profit from however much someone paid you for that stock. There are a few other examples. Perhaps you gave a gift, perhaps a stock matured or some other ownership stake matured, and you immediately gave it as a gift. That act of gift giving is treated as a benefit to you. So that's treated as a realization event. But the key point is that Up until now, the federal government has always said, if you don't get any money or any other benefit, that has not been realized, and therefore that is not income. And as a political question, people like Joe Biden, like Elizabeth Warren, have tried to blur that distinction between income that was not realized, that is to say, you have the cash, uh, and and income that has been realized. Yes. So when you hear talk about a potential wealth tax imposed by the federal government, that would be crossing that line even more explicitly. Now, there are some state level taxes that you could define as wealth taxes. You know, the value of your house goes up and you have to pay more property taxes. But there's always been an explicit limitation that only states can impose those kinds of taxes. The federal government under the Constitution is much more limited because the Constitution says Unless you apportion a tax equally per capita across all 50 states, which is almost impossible to do, it's only valid if it's an income tax. And so that definition of income in the 16th Amendment places a significant limit on the kinds of taxes the federal government can impose. All right, let's go to the 2017 tax reform signed into law by President Donald John Trump. What was what's the issue that the Supreme Court has decided to wade into that was in that tax reform? It was a provision called the mandatory repatriation tax, and this was essentially a compromise. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, as it was called, changed the rules going forward for taxation on U.S. citizens who own shares in foreign corporations. But as a one-time fix to make up some of the gap, some of the lowered tax revenue that would happen going forward, it imposed a legal fiction. It said, for everyone who currently owns more than 10% of foreign corporations, we're going to pretend you got a dividend this year worth your ownership stake going back as long as you've held it, uh, even even if in fact you did not. So this is a classic case of essentially a tax as if they had realized income. A dividend is a classic realization event, but there was no actual dividend. In part- the particular challengers in this case had owned a small in- company in India called Kizencraft 
that dealt with giving tools to rural farmers and had always reinvested all of its profits in itself and never given any dividends. So this is a classic example of people who'd never seen a penny from their investment, and yet suddenly they got a bill as if they'd received significant dividends going back more than a decade. And and not just didn't actually earn a dividend, they're basically giving money to a company that for all intents and purposes, is out there to lose money on purpose. Yes, it's essentially a charity. And there are plenty of corporations like this that aren't formally set up as charities. You know, the tax rules differ in various companies. But the upshot is the people who invested in it didn't get any money, which usually used to be an assurance that if you're not getting any money from it, at the very least, you're not going to be taxed on it. This was the assumption they had had going forward. They literally did not even know that this change in the rules had happened until they got the IRS bill. And so the IRS is asking for what? The IRS is saying that this is fine, that they are asking for a very broad definition of realization, that they can essentially treat the increase in what you owned as, a, as, as something taxable. And they, in fact, told the Ninth Circuit, no, you don't have to. Constitutionally speaking, you don't have to have what courts have defined as a realization event going back years, that we can define it more broadly uh, to just an increase in the value of your holdings. And the Ninth Circuit said, yes, that's fine. You know, they took some language, they took some of the Supreme Court's precedents, which defined realization more broadly, and they extended those further and said, we interpret these to mean you don't have to have realization at all. And so that precedent matters not just for this case, but for a potential future wealth tax, you know, signed by President Warren eight years from now. This is just out of my own curiosity because I've talked to our tax guys about the push for wealth taxes. Is there any nod or consideration that the uh, IRS gives to the notion that perhaps you should get a rebate if your portfolio declines in value? No, as with many rules for the IRS, it, it redounds to their benefit when you get some sort of profit, but you usually do not get the flip side. Um, and that's the case here. So the mandatory repatriation tax was only a tax imposed on these pseudo-realization events, these, these pseudo-profits, but did not, did not affect the flip side. And that's another reason why a lot of investors feel like they got the short end of the stick with this rule. So now the agency, the feds essentially, will have to defend these claims in court. What do we know about how those, what do we suspect about how those claims might change before the Supreme Court actually hears this case? Well, we know that this will be argued sometime next term. The strat It's always interesting to see what strategy does the federal government take. Do they defend the appellate court's reasoning, in this case, the Ninth Circuit's broad reasoning, or do they try to narrow it to get a better chance of a win? I think the government is well aware of the implications of the Ninth Circuit's reasoning and how broad it was, and that affirming that might scare the Supreme Court. So I think it's very possible that the government will try to narrow it significantly and say, no, there are specific factors about, say, foreign income. Perhaps that's they try to distinguish that from normal U.S. income in terms of, oh, we can have more legal fictions here, say, because accounting is more difficult or something like that. I would expect them to try to come up with some sort of strategy that narrows this as much as possible to try to not scare the justices, because it's clear from the fact that the court took this case that they realized some of the implications here. As a compromise, as you noted, this tax, this 
pseudo-realization event tax as it was passed, it, I would imagine that the people who nonetheless supported this law, despite this tax, had an inkling that perhaps this was a non-starter as a, an issue before courts. For those who dug into it, I'm guessing as usual with Congress, not there's not a lot of digging into the weeds. And this is for most people in the, such a massive bill, this counted as in the weeds. It, it certainly did not get a lot of headlines at the time it was passed, unless you're a tax law nerd. Uh, so it may well have been something that flew under the radar for most of them. But sometimes, yes, sometimes strategically, you know, if you're a member of Congress and you have a compromise and you think what you're giving up is going to end up being struck down by the courts, all the better. But in my view, courts can't kind of look at those political dealings. They can't they can't enforce reliance interests of what kind of trade did Congress make. They just have to set the legal principle here. And the problem is if this stands as a precedent, uh, you're going to see even more extreme taxes on non-income in the future. Tommy Berry is editor of the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court Review. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 